Welcome to the North Shore Church audio podcast. To find out more information about North Shore Church, please visit us at mynsag.com. We hope you enjoy today's message. If you have your Bibles, open up to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to start there, and then also you can flip over to Acts chapter 28. We'll be there in just a few minutes as well. But Ephesians chapter 4 is where we're going to start. This morning, we're finishing up our Pillars series, and over the last several weeks, as many of you know that have been here, we've been looking at the five ministry gifts that Jesus gave to equip, empower, and strengthen the church. These five ministry gifts, these five pillars we've been focusing on, we've been breaking them down individually to see where we fit and what God has for us specifically today. We looked at the pastor, and we said, just because you might not hold a title doesn't mean that you can't pastor in some way, shape, or form. I say often that I believe that it's my job to convince you that it's your job to do what you believe is my job. Okay? Every single one of us are called to pastor at some level, to care for people, to pray for people, to equip people, to grow people, to love on people, to, to just minister to people. I believe that my primary job is to convince you that it's your job to do what you believe is my job. We looked at the pastor. We also looked at the evangelist. Said so just because you might not hold a title doesn't mean that you can't evangelize. All believers have a responsibility to go into all the world and preach the gospel. This isn't just the pastors, the paid ministry staff. Every single believer, if you have faith in Jesus and you've committed your life to Jesus, then you have a responsibility to spread the message of Jesus, to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Your world may be your job. It may be your family. It may be your neighborhood, but you have a job. You have a responsibility to go into your world and preach the gospel. We talked about the teacher. Just because you might not hold a title doesn't mean that you can't teach. Find your area of influence and make the most of it. Teach people about the Bible. Teach people about Jesus. Teach people about the Holy Spirit. Teach people what it means to be a faithful follower of Christ. Find your area of influence and make the most of it. Last week we talked about the prophet. Just because you might not hold a title doesn't mean that you can't operate in a prophetic anointing. We talked about the fact that the prophets will always point people to Jesus. All the focus will be back on Jesus. And a prophetic anointing, and a prophetic anointing is a ministry, is a heart that points people to Jesus, to the life of Jesus, to the death of Jesus, to the resurrection of Jesus, and now to the return of Jesus, right? And the soon coming royal, perfect, eternal reign of Jesus. It's something that we look forward to, amen? And so the last pillar that we're going to discuss this morning is the pillar of the apostle. It's the apostle. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, it's the foundational scripture that we've been looking at every single week. It says this, And Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Jesus gave these five gifts, these five pillars, to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry and for building up the body of Christ. And apostles are one of those gifts and one of those pillars. Now, there's some debate as to what qualifies a person as an apostle. Some argue that 
one of the requirements of the apostles are that they physically saw Jesus with their eyes, that they walked with Jesus and talked with Jesus, that they had real physical interaction with Jesus. And so they would submit that the age of the apostle is over because after those disciples who sort of transitioned into apostles died, that the office of the apostle is officially over because nobody here today living has actually seen physically with their, with their eyes the person of Jesus. And and that may be, I don't know, I don't really want to argue semantics this morning, but we have to make sure that even if we submit that the office of the apostle is no longer active today, we can't neglect the work of the apostle. Just because we may not hold the title doesn't mean that we need to neglect the work. We believe that we are living in the New Testament church. In fact, there's an organization called the Acts 29 Network. It's Acts 29 something. And um, it, it believes that we are a part of the New Testament church. Acts ends in 28, Acts chapter 28. We are living in Acts chapter 29. Today, we're living in Acts chapter 29. And that means that we believe that we are called to do the exact same things that they were called to do in the early church, to grow, to equip, to advance, to spread the gospel to all ends of the earth. So we have to make sure that we don't neglect the work of the apostle because the saints are not yet fully equipped. How many of you are believers in this place? Let me see your hands. You'd call yourself a believer. You'd call yourself a saint. How many, how many of you are fully equipped? You have everything that you need. You don't need to learn anything else. You don't need to know. You're well, then we got work to do. The body of Christ is not fully built up. There are people in your neighborhoods, there are people in your families that God is pursuing and he's sending out apostles, prophets, evangelists, teachers, and uh, what's the other one? I can't remember. Anyway, let's just say that I said all five of them. He's sending them out to go and gather them and bring them back in, and he wants you to operate in those roles. All of us are gifted differently, and all of us have maybe a bent to one of these things, but God calls us to fulfill the work of the ministry. So whether or not the office of the apostle exists today, we know that there is still much work to do. When Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me, he is calling us to a life of action. He's calling us to a life of adventure. Oftentimes, we respond by strapping on knee pads, helmets, and wrapping ourselves in bubble wrap, condemned to a life of safety and whining and complaining about being bored. I've said this several times throughout this series, but in, in my heart, there's a, there's a place in my spirit where as I think about our church and I think about what God is doing in, the, in his earth right now, I just, I, 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 ache because I feel bored. God, I, I, want, I want more. God, do something. God, God, show us something. I just, there's, there's got to be more. How many of you parents like it when your kid complains about being bored? Any of you? Daddy, I'm bored, right? Then we go through the list of stuff. Don't you dare complain to me about being bored, right? We go through the list. Did you clean your room like I told you 10 times already? 
I bet it's not. I bet if I go downstairs, I'm going to see clothes everywhere, toys everywhere, books. Did you clean your room? Did you practice your piano? Go ride a bike. Go paint a picture. We have whole shelves full of toys that you said, oh, I have to have this. I have to have this. You played with it for like five minutes total your entire life. Go play, for it. Go play with it for five more minutes. And then we just start getting mad, don't we? We start getting angry. If you're going to complain about being bored, I'm going to make you not bored really quick, right? Get all fired up. Don't you dare complain to me about being bored. We'll get rid of all of your toys, and then you'll know what boredom is. <laughs> but, but I think oftentimes we, we feel this way. And, and I think there's somewhere, maybe we don't verbalize it because we're smarter than that. Um, but I think there's some of us spiritually who are just bored. We're just bored spiritually. You're bored with God. You're bored with church. And what I'm beginning to understand is that an apostolic calling is marked by divine adventure. Most of this series we've developed with the help of a book called Catch the Wind of the Spirit, and I highly recommend it. And the author starts out by talking about a coracle, but, but in that title, Catching the Wind of the Spirit, I, I, I want to mention that all the gifts that we talk about through this series, these five pillars, must be empowered by the Holy Spirit. We must have the power, the anointing, the energy of the Holy Spirit backing these gifts, backing these pillars. Otherwise, we're just going through the motions. And if we're just going through the motions and we don't have the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit, we're going to get bored. And that may be the reason why we're, we're, we're spiritually bored right now because we haven't invited the Holy Spirit to have his way in our life, in our church, and in our homes. She starts out her book, This Catching the Wind of the Spirit, by talking about a coracle. And a coracle is a boat. I want to read uh, part of the, her opening uh, chapter with you. It says this In the days of the ancient Celtic church, it's about um, AD 430 to 900, one could see some exciting ventures on the high seas. The Welsh, Irish, and Scottish had long been making small boats from which they would launch into the sea to fish and move from place to place. So she's talking about these coracles, which are small, like one to two men fishing boats. They were called coracles. The boat was generally designed for one or two people and was in the shape of a walnut shell. Split willow rods were bent and interwoven to form a frame. Then this was covered with animal hide and the seams were tarred. The boats were light and easy to carry from place to place. Gen generally, they were propelled with broad-bladed paddles. The Celtic monks were by no means opposed to adventure and they liked to build larger coracles that would hold more people and set out into the ocean. And so these, these Celtic Christians um, <clears throat> were a little bit crazy. They were a little bit adventurous. They would build these fishing boats a little bit bigger. They would hold more people and they would take them not into the sea but into the ocean where the sharks live, okay? Just so we're clear. Into the ocean, she says, this would be adventurous by itself, but additionally, the coracles were rudderless, and often the monks would take no oars or paddles. They would take these small fishing boats, build them a little bit bigger, put 10 to 15, 20 people on them, and they would take off the rudder, and they would get rid of all of the oars and all of the paddles, and they would just go out into the ocean. They hoisted their sails, and caught the winds and the currents. Listen, believing that God would take them where they were supposed to go to share the gospel. 
Most of us are afraid to go across the street to share the gospel. These maniacs would build a boat, get rid of anything that would help them steer, go out into the ocean. We're talking the ocean, not Lake Hastings. And that would be hard enough in Lake Hastings, right? Imagine doing that out of Lake Hastings. You jump in a boat, you let it go. Hey, whichever house I come up to, I'm going to go tell them about Jesus. Like, no way, I'm not doing that. That's crazy. They would go to the ocean, throw up the sail, and believe that wherever God took them and directed them is where they were supposed to do a Christ-centered missionary work. That's insane, right? The spirit of adventure became the spark. This spirit of adventure became the spark of some of the greatest prayer movements and Holy Spirit-directed revivals ever known. And I can't help but wonder if the Lord isn't inviting us to set sail again, to trust him. What if we just trusted him to to throw up the sail and throw away the oars and start out on a divine adventure? Just say, God, I don't know how, I don't know where. We would never do this because we have to plan and we have to Google and then we have to Google Maps and then we have to street view things and then we have to answer all these uh, frequently asked questions. We have to know everything every step of the way before we're going to do anything and then we need a guarantee of success these people said hey we got a boat we got wind let's go see what god has for us the author writes this when the tide is rising and going out everyone must choose Will we stay on the shore or will we jump in? If we put one leg in the coracle and then hesitate, the coracle will have us doing the splits in no time. We have to seize the moment and take off, or not. We don't have to. We can enjoy the life of divine adventure that God has called us to, or we can just stay back on the shore and continue to to complain about being spiritually bored. The believer was never meant to play it safe. Too many of us are content to stay on the shore and forgo the divine adventure that God has called us to. I read this quote the other day from George McLeod. It says, the church is a movement, not a meeting house. The faith is an experience, not an exposition. Christians are explorers, not map makers. It is a present experience made possible at Bethlehem, offered on Calvary and communicated at Pentecost. When it comes to your faith, are you tired of being bored? Most of us are. I think, too, that it's often spiritual boredom more than anything else. I believe it's a spiritual boredom that forces us to pack our schedules with everything that we can think of. I think it's spiritual boredom that has us running from place to place, meeting to meeting, ballgame to ballgame, and practice to practice. I think it's spiritual boredom that causes us to search for meaning and purpose in all sorts of secondary things. I think it's spiritual boredom that leads us to fight in the church and fight in the family of God. And I believe it's divine adventure and not busyness that's the cure for boredom. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn them to Acts chapter 28, if you're not there already. Acts chapter 28. I want us to consider the apostle Paul. Paul was one of the greatest apostles in, in all of Scripture. He is credited with writing much of the New Testament. Just Paul's a really, really important guy. We look to Paul often for uh, his teaching and the epistles and, and just his life as we study it. And uh, Paul, this apostle, his life was not boring at all. In fact, in this story where we pick it up in Acts chapter 28 and, or 27 and 28, Paul 
his, his official title, I guess, at the moment wouldn't be apostle. His official title would be prisoner. Paul was a prisoner on a, a Roman ship set for Rome because he had an appointment with Caesar. And uh, so we have Paul here. He's in his orange jumpsuit. He's got the chains on. And Paul is a prisoner. <clears throat> um, but I, I want to say something before we get going too far. You see, we have a tendency to get really hung up on titles, offices, and roles. We have, a, 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 we have a, a tendency to get hung up on what people know us by, or on how people define us, or the labels that they put on us. And I want to tell you that as we've been going through this series, and I want you to know this, man, it's just in my heart, I want you to know this, that your label and your title has nothing to do with your calling, Okay? It doesn't matter what people think or what people say when they look at you. The only thing that matters in your life is whether or not you are called and how you are going to respond to that calling that God has placed on your life. Your title doesn't matter to your calling. So we have Paul. He's a prisoner, but he still acts an awful lot like an apostle. He may have been a prisoner at the moment, but God had called him to be an apostle. So Paul is on his way to Rome to stand trial before Caesar because he created a commotion when he was preaching the gospel and stirring up riots and stuff like that. People were accusing him of stirring up riots and stuff like that. And so he appealed to Caesar. He was on his way to Rome. So prisoner Paul was on a ship set for Rome and they ran into this massive storm. Verse tw- or chapter 27 of Acts tells us. It's just this mother of all storms, this huge storm. And what they had to do is they had to lower their sails and they just had to ride out the storm. They couldn't fight it because if they fought the storm, they would destroy their ship and they would drown. They would all die and they would drown. And so they lowered the sails, they brought everything in, and they were just being pressed along by the storm. It was a spirit-directed storm because I believe that God had something he wanted to do on the place where they eventually landed, but God was directing the ship. And so they pulled everything in, they were just being tossed around. Day one, it was looking pretty bad. When they brought the sail down, things weren't looking good. It was dark. It was nasty. On day two, the storm was so great that they threw all of their cargo overboard to lighten the load so that they would hopefully survive. On day three, they threw all of their tackle, everything else overboard in a last-ditch effort to survive. When that didn't work, they ultimately began accepting the inevitable that they were going to die at sea. It was clear that the ship wasn't going to be able to hold. They believed that they were going to die. They were just kind of waiting to drown at sea. Day after day, they were tossed and battered. But day after day, the ship somehow managed to stay afloat. They had little food and supplies. And for 14 days, they were patiently awaiting the death that they knew was going to overtake them. On day 15... They looked up and they saw a little break in the clouds, a little break in the horizon, and they saw land. And they saw that they were close to land. And so with the storm raging and the wind still blowing, they had a plan. Their plan was to sail as fast as they can and crash, if necessary, into the land. So in their last-ditch attempt to survive, the captain gave the order to cut the anchors and hoisted the sail and they started on their suicide run towards land, the only land that they'd seen in the last 15 days. Some distance from the land, the shore, the boat struck a reef and, and got stuck, and it wasn't able to move or, uh, uh, maneuver its way out, and uh, the waves just began to batter and rip the, the ship apart. 
Now, one of the guys, one of the captains of the, the prisoners, the guards of the prisoners said, look, we're going to die. The, the ship is being destroyed. We have to make a swim for it. But before we do, we need to kill all of these prisoners because if they swim to shore and escape, then we will be executed because we lost prisoners. And so there was one of the captains, one of the guards that was going around said, hey, we have to kill all these prisoners. There was another guy that stepped in and said, no, 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 we're not going to kill them. We're going to give everybody a chance to make it to the shore. And so with the storm still raging and the ship ripping apart with one of the captains kind of nervous about the prisoners swimming for it. He'd rather kill them than let them swim. All 276 people on board jumped into the water. Those who swam would swim. Those who couldn't grabbed a piece of the ship that was floating and ended up floating, and all 276 people make it to land. Prisoner Paul, the other prisoners, the guards, and the crew of the ship. And this is where we pick up this story in Acts chapter 28. They've just been shipwrecked onto land after spending 15 days being battered and beaten by the storm. Acts chapter 28, verse 1 says this. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. So they'd been freezing for 15 days. There must have been some sort of a break in the storm. And once they got to land, it started raining again. And they're just freezing cold. They're just shivering and, and just, just on the verge of hypothermia. I, uh, has anybody ever seen Survivor? You know, the, the reality show Survivor. You know what I'm talking about. There was uh, a... Uh, a season a while back, and it was in a really wet region, and it was, must have been the rainy season because it just rained and rained and rained on these poor Survivor cast members as they're out there at their competition trying to make uh, a million dollars. And, and I remember this one episode where it was just raining the whole time, so they weren't doing much. They were all in their little huts and, and just dripping wet, even in the huts, and they were all just huddled around, and they were all shivering and freezing, and the camera would zoom in on their hands, and their hands looked like it had been soaking in bath water for like four days. Their hands were just all shriveled and wrinkly and that really white, you know, uh, wet, pasty looking. And, and there was this one scene that it was just weird. I, I remember this girl, she was sitting down on her little chair thing and she, she looked down at her foot and she reached down and she grabbed her toenail and just pulled it right off. Just like that. She just, she said, that's my toenail. And the other girl said, did you just pull your toenail off? She said, yeah, it just came right off. Because they were soaking wet. They were just, body was completely waterlogged. That pieces of them were falling off, right? Disgusting. Now, no doubt these men who had been beaten and battered by this storm for the last 15 days were soaked to the bone. And their condition was far worse than those survivors that had toenails falling off. They were waterlogged on the edge of hypothermia. And, and imagine, get this picture in your mind as they're stumbling onto the shore, coughing and gagging on seawater. All of them on the verge of death, lying there, feeling the ground, saying, thank you, Lord, that I'm still alive, but I still don't know if I'm going to live. Pieces of them falling off and gross things happening. So the natives who are treating them with kindness greet them. Immediately, they look at them. They see that these people are freezing cold on the verge of death. And they said, we have to build a fire. And the most important thing for these people right now is we have to get them warm. Let's build them a fire. 
Verse 3. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, and I want to stop right there. It says, when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire. Listen, Paul has been near death for the past 14 days at sea. And he just faced another threat the last 14 minutes when one of the Roman soldiers wanted to kill them all so that they didn't escape. So Paul has been escaping death for the last two weeks, right? Freezing cold, on the verge of hypothermia, waterlogged, hungry, tired, probably to the point of seeing things. And when they all stumble, 276 of them stumble onto the shore, the natives say, we got to warm these people up. Paul gets up and helps the natives gather sticks for the fire. Paul had a reason to just sit and let them do it, didn't he? Paul didn't have to get up and help them. I would imagine that not all 276 people were up gathering sticks for the fire. I would imagine that a lot of them were just like trying to breathe and trying to calm their nerves. But Paul had gotten up, though he had been beaten and battered and shipwrecked and waterlogged and and all of this stuff. Paul got up and he was gathering sticks for the fire. Listen, I think that we, as believers especially, need to quit looking for things to complain about. Paul had plenty of things to complain about. Paul had plenty of reasons, plenty of things he could have pointed to that said, I just need to stop. Look, we need workers, not whiners. If you are looking for something to whine about, I promise you, you will find it every single time. If you are looking for something about this church to whine about, you're going to find lots of things. If you're looking for something about the pastor to whine about, man, I could give you things that you don't even know to whine about. If you are looking for something to whine about, I promise you, you will find it. But God is not looking for whiners. He's looking for workers, okay? Number one, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. Apostles work hard. Apostles work hard. When you think of the circumstances surrounding this, it really begins to blow your mind. Why in the world was Paul gathering sticks? Because he was a worker. Because there's nothing that would stop him from doing a job. The church and the world desperately needs believers who are willing to work hard. Believers who refuse to say, this isn't my job. This is beneath me. Believers who will see a need and meet a need no matter how big, but more importantly, no matter how small. In every function, in every gathering that we do as a church, you can see the workers and the watchers. Usually the watchers assume that the work is below them and they think like we have people to do that kind of stuff for us. And the workers will just go in and get it done, despite the circumstances. The watchers are content to stand on the shore and observe the adventure passing them by. The workers are usually the one that's pushing the coracle out there waist deep and then jumping in the last minute, setting out on an adventure, believing and trusting that God is going to take them in places that they could have never gone on their own. When was the last time you worked hard for God? When was the last time you worked hard for the kingdom? When was the last time you worked hard for something that had real eternal value? 
When was the last time you did something for the kingdom of God that was difficult, that pushed you a little bit? When was the last time we worked hard? Because we work hard at a lot of things. When was the last time you worked hard for God? Let's keep going. Verse 3. Let's go back and read that again. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks, remember, he's on the verge of death, and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he had escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. Paul just can't seem to catch a break here, can he? Not at all. We say, hey, we need to be like the apostles. You're looking at this thinking, I don't want to be like Paul. I don't want to go in a shipwreck and you know, get bit by snakes. Like, I'm not interested in this at all. So Paul can't catch a break. He survives 15 days. He survives the shipwreck. And now he gets bit by a poisonous snake after helping out the natives start a fire. So this is what happened. Paul grabs some sticks. He grabs a bundle of sticks. He throws it into the fire. He's still freezing. He's standing close to the fire, right? You know, freezing, trying to warm up. As he has his hands over the fire, the bundle of sticks that he threw into the fire had a snake that he didn't know about, and the snake got a little toasty, and so he jumped out. And when the snake jumped out of the bundle of sticks that Paul just threw in, it jumped up and grabbed onto Paul's hand, latched onto Paul's hand, just like that. Like he's warming himself up. So out jumps this like ninja snake and grabs his hand. And there, and there Paul is. Verse 5 says this, he, Paul, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. I don't know about you, but I'm not a huge fan of snakes. I'm just not. There's been a couple of times, I don't know if the guy is in this room or not, if you are, welcome. But there's a couple of times, like I've been driving down the street and there's some dude walking around with a gigantic snake around his neck. Has anybody else seen that? I'm driving, I'm like, Satan or something, I don't know scary and just why would you do that i mean snakes are creepy it does anybody else do like the weird lawnmower gardener snake dance when you see a gardener snake and you're mowing the lawn right you're just mowing along you see a snake and you're bouncing around and you chase it mess up your lines everywhere like it's a little tiny gardener snake like a foot long and you think it's like a demon and you're get out get out and then every blade of grass or every cricket that you see the rest of the day is like a, like a 30-foot python that's ready to swallow you whole. And you feel really good about yourself running over a little snake with a gigantic lawnmower. That's right. Come at me again. Right? Like, I, I don't know, but I, I hate snakes. I, I, don't, I don't like snakes. But Paul, it seems, stayed pretty cool. The snake jumps out, latches onto him long enough for the natives to look at it and see, uh-oh, That's a poisonous snake hanging from his hand. I don't know too many of us that would, if somebody had to tell the story of a snake jumping out of a fire, biting our hands, not too many of us would say that that snake was hanging there. For me, they wouldn't say, hey, a snake jumped out of a fire and it was hanging from Chris's hand. You'd have to say, like, a snake jumped out of the fire, it it latched, it viciously attacked Chris, and he flailed around like he was a scared little seven-year-old girl. Like, Like, that's... That's what it would say. But Paul, Paul was different. Paul was crazy in his faith. Paul Paul was audacious. Number two, if you're taking notes, write this down. Apostles are audacious. 
Apostles are those who are marked by audacious faith. They put more trust in their Lord than in their circumstances. They put more trust in their God than they do in their situation. Their reality is anchored in what their spirit sees more than what their eyes see. Let me say this again. Apostles, their reality is anchored more in what their spirit sees than what their eyes see. Because just a couple of days earlier, Paul had a vision. There was an angel of the Lord that had appeared to Paul on the ship and told Paul that he was going to stand before Caesar. So when everybody on the ship was afraid that they were going to die, Paul says, hey, look, none of us are going to die. Because God told me, I'm going to stand before Caesar. And so when Paul swam to the shore and threw the sticks in and a snake jumped up and bit him in the hand, he wasn't afraid that that snake was going to kill him. Why? Because he trusted the promises of God more than he trusted the current circumstance that he was in, which, oh, by the way, happened to be a snake attached to his hand. Paul trusted with his spiritual eyes more than he did with his physical eyes. And so what does Paul do? Paul ate. Weird, there's a snake on my hand, and he's still cold because, so he doesn't run from the fire, he stays there by the fire, he just puts his hand over the fire, shakes it a little bit, right? Snake off of there, snake falls into the fire. Everybody else is looking at him, freaking out, right? Paul trusted with his spirit more than he trusted with his eyes. And I think that sometimes we need to trust what the Lord is speaking to our hearts more than what we see with our physical eyes. We need to learn how to shake that snake to the fire. When the enemy's bringing you lies and when the enemy's, the enemy's coming against you, when the enemy's attacking, we need to shake that snake into the fire. Right? Next time you're at the hospital and you get a bad report, you need to just stand up and you need to do this. It's like, what are you doing? I'm I'm trusting my God more than I'm trusting your stupid report. Shake that snake into the fire. We need to have more faith in what God is speaking here than what we see here. Shake that snake into the fire. Be cool about it, too. Paul knew he wasn't going to die. The angel had already told him. But Paul was crazy enough to actually believe the word of the Lord. Think about that. He was crazy enough to actually believe that God, what God said to him would happen. I wonder what would happen if we stopped trying to explain the word and just started believing it. What would happen if we stopped trying to manipulate the promises of God and started living as if the promises were already fulfilled? This is why I love watching people tithe for the first time. Because there is some nervousness, there's some hesitation, but, but they, they begin to approach sort of this audacious faith where they're like, I believe God's word. I be, I'm, I'm, I'm believing that God is going to do and is who he says he is going to be. And, and there's some nervousness. I know it's not a snake hanging from your hand, but it can be just as scary. But they're trusting the Lord. I think one of the reasons why we as believers refuse to pray for our friends and family is because we don't have the faith that they'll be healed. But what if we started praying with an audacious, crazy kind of faith? Not only that we believe God can heal, but we believe God will heal. Verse 6, 
The natives were waiting for Paul to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. I don't know if Paul like, gave him a little shake just to freak him out. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he must be a god. Number three, apostles turn up the light. The natives had some understanding of God. They had some belief system. They believed in gods or, or a god. They believed that the gods were trying to punish Paul, but then when he didn't die, they believed that maybe he was a god, and so they were kind of freaked out and, and a little bit in awe that they were standing in the presence of the god. Um, and so the, the natives had a little bit of general revelation. As you look around in this world, um, everybody knows. You can see the fingerprint of God everywhere in creation. There is this obvious just thought inside of every one of us that know that there is something more. There was something to this. There is grand design in all of this. And so they had this sort of general revelation, this understanding that God or, or a God or gods exist, and it's this light, however dim it may be. Um, and then when Paul didn't die, they thought, oh, this must be a part of the light. But Paul, and we don't see this specifically in this passage, but we know based on who Paul was, will take that opportunity not to lift himself up, but to shine the light brighter on Jesus. It, it, it's like Paul, like we saw in Mars Hill when he's going around, he said, hey, there's, you got an altar here to a God? I'm going to tell you about this God. When they would have asked Paul, hey, are you a God? Paul would have said, no, I'm not a God, but I can tell you all about him. No, God's name isn't Paul. God's name is Jesus. Let me talk to you about him. There isn't just a higher power you can sort of vaguely look to. There is a God, an almighty, that you can know personally, and you can know his name. Let me tell you about him. Apostles turn up the light. Apostles point the light to Jesus. If you're a believer, I want you to listen to me. People who know you should know Jesus more. If they know you, they should know Jesus more. It's that simple. We always try to overcomplicate this. If you know me, you're going to know Jesus more. That should be the mindset of every single believer. Verse 7. <clears throat> now in the neighborhood of that place, worship team, you guys can come. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island, who received us and enter, entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when, he had taken, and when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to, when we were about to leave, they put us on board, they put on board whatever we needed. One more comment I want to make before we close. Apostles seize opportunities. I want you to think about this. <clears throat> I want you to think about how good God is, how awesome he is. <clears throat> Paul was set to go to Rome <clears throat> as a prisoner, but God had a work that he wanted to do in Malta. God had people that he wanted to reveal himself to. God had people he wanted to heal in Malta. And so he knew that prisoner Paul, just because he had the title prisoner, was still going to act like an apostle. And so he sent this great big storm to, to reroute 
Paul from Rome to Malta because he had a great work that he wanted to do in Malta. And, and as Paul, with confidence, shook the snake off into the fire and, um, and, and stayed um, he, you know, well and began to tell people about God and Jesus, and, and he sees the chief's father that has fever and dysentery. He prays for him. He recovers. And so people from all over the region come in. They get prayed for, and they get, they get healed. And so we have this mini revival starting out on the island of Malta, and nobody even knew where Malta was. But God in his goodness and God with the, with the map in place is going to send his people where he needs them to go. God's going to send his people to places to do amazing things. But we have to be willing to seize the opportunity Remember, Paul's official title at the beginning of the story was prisoner, but he still acted like an apostle. Listen, we have to stop asking God to use us and start expecting that he's going to. We have to stop coming to the altar and saying, God, use me. God, use me. And we just have to start coming to the altars or not even coming to the altars, but leaving the church building and say, God, what are we going to do? The other day, I was... I had Abram, my son, and I told him to come help me fix the fence. He said, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to fix the fence. I said, come on. I told him, follow me. Follow me, come on, you're coming with me. And not once was Abram behind me saying, Father, use me. Here I am, I'm available. Whatever you want, Father. He didn't do any of that stuff. He just stayed there, fully expecting that I was going to have him do something. It didn't surprise him in the least bit when I said, hold this, rip this down, grab that hammer, do this. It didn't, he was expecting it. He was ready for it. He was ready to come in. But what, you know what we do? Come, Father, use me. All these people seeing me respond to this altar call. Father, use me. I says, great, there's this neighbor of yours. Nope, nope, not interested. Well, there's this person at work that I, I really want you to, no, God, please, just use me. We have to stop asking God to use us and start expecting that he's going to because he wants to. He sent apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, and evangelists to be used. And though we have ministry bents and giftings, God wants to use us. When was the last time you woke up and thought, God, what are we going to do today? What kingdom advancement mission do you got me on today? Because I'm ready. I'm ready. Stand your feet all across this place. What if we as believers of this church committed to take advantage of every single opportunity that God places in front of us? I want to close our time, this series, and this message this morning with this quote that I read this past week from Pastor Craig Rochelle. It says this, Your life is too valuable, your calling too great, and your God too good to waste your life on meaningless things. You were put here to make a difference.
You were put here to make a difference. I know over this series, we haven't done a lot of like salvation, altar call stuff, like get right with Jesus sort of thing. We've been talking mostly to the church and to the believers in this church, but I believe that if we could catch the heart of the Holy Spirit in this, we could do far more good for the kingdom of God exponentially than what we could do by having salvation response altar calls every week. If we had a body of believers, if we had a church full of pastors, evangelists, teachers, prophets, and apostles that are looking for opportunities to take advantage of, can you imagine what God would do in your family in this church? Bow your heads, close your eyes all across this place. My prayer is that we be a church that's marked by divine, Holy Spirit-initiated adventure. And so I just have a question for you. I don't know exactly how this plays out practically in your life. I know that the Holy Spirit speaks individually, and I know that he awakens things that lie dormant sometimes, or he initiates some things in your thoughts and your minds that he's wanting you to do. Mostly just being available and being ready but I just want to ask, are you ready to push away from the shore and give God control? Are you ready to step in the boat and say, God, whatever you want? Are you ready to say, God, I am no longer going to confine myself to a life of spiritual boredom. I'm going to be about your business. I'm going to follow you fully expecting that you're going to ask me to do something. And if you don't ask me to do something, God, I'm going to annoy you to death until you give me something to do. Are you ready to push away from the shore? We're going to take two more minutes. And, and I'm going to do this. In the, in the first service, I just asked them to indicate it by a show of hands. But, but I think we need to take it a little step further. If you're ready and you just want to pray that prayer, make that commitment, you may not fully know what it looks like this morning. But you just say, I, I, I want more. I'm ready, God, to give you my all. I am ready to, to be a part of your business. I'm ready to step off of the shore. If that's you, would you just make your way out from where you are right now and come down to the front and just let the Holy Spirit confirm something inside of you that he has something more for you? If that's you, and you'd say, I'm ready. I'm ready to step off. I'm ready to do more for God. I am ready to give my life to a divine adventure. I'm ready to be used. I'm going to say, yes, Lord. I'm going expecting. I'm going anticipating that you're going to ask me to do something. And I'm not going to be surprised when you ask me to do something. And I'm not going to tell you no. If that's you, maybe the Lord is calling you to to pastor your neighborhood. Maybe the Lord is calling you to evangelize. Maybe the Lord is calling you to point people to Jesus in a prophetic ministry. Maybe the Lord is calling you to some sort of a divine adventure. He said, will you be available? And there's got to be more, right? There's got to be more. There's got to be more. Jesus, use me for more. Is our God? No, see how 
Comfortable, can we raise our hands all across this place? The splendor of the king, always clothed in majesty. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would reveal in every single one of us what you would have. I pray that you would reveal in every single one of us in what pillar and what gifting that you want us to operate in today. And if tomorrow's different, we'll do that tomorrow. Lord Jesus, let us be a church full of people who are obsessed with you, who are following you, and willing to step off of the shore into this divine adventure. God, call us to more. Call us to deeper places. Call us to deeper places, Jesus. Let's just take one minute all across this place and just ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us individually what he would have us do. Where would he have us go? What specifically is he calling us to do all across this place? Jesus, Holy Spirit, how does this apply? Where does this apply to me? Where does this apply to me? Holy Spirit, where does this apply to me? What would you have me do? What would you have for me? What would you have for me? And now finally, before we go, let's take one more minute and ask the Holy Spirit to empower us. This effort on our own leads to boredom. Holy Spirit, empowerment with our effort leads to divine adventure. Can we ask the Holy Spirit to empower us all across this place? Let's ask the Holy Spirit to fill us up fresh and new. Fill us up, Holy Spirit. Fill us up. Fill us up. Fill us up. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you. You're so good. We pray that you would give us the power, the courage, the opportunity to do great things for you in your kingdom. Jesus, we thank you that through this series, we know that the church is stronger and the people are encouraged and we are ready to do what you have called us to do, God. I pray that we would not miss any opportunity that you have set for us today, this week, and this year. God, I pray that you would bless us, your people. We love you. Church, I love you guys. I know that God has great things in store for you. I know that God has great things in store for us. Go this week. This is just the beginning. Let out there be your altar call. We love you guys. Be blessed as you go. If you want to stay and pray, you're welcome to stay and pray. Remember the life group tables. Check out those life group tables. If you have questions, go talk to our life group leaders. Love you guys. Be blessed.